Welcome to Trip Talk. I'm Jennifer Napier Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. He's only been in office for a year, but Representative Chris Stewart has gained the respect of his GOP colleagues enough to secure a seat on the powerful House Appropriations Committee. But his statements on climate change and immigration have also cultivated critics. And today on Trip Talk, we're talking with the congressman about his first year in office and about his intention to run for a second. Chris Stewart represents Utah's second congressional district. He's joining me here in the Tribune newsroom and representative great to have you thank you so much for your time thank you Jennifer it's uh, it's fun to be with you also with us Tribune Washington correspondent Thomas Burr joining us from his home office in Washington and Tommy great to have you back hey thanks for having me and you can join our conversation today if you've got questions or comments for Congressman Chris Stewart send them to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google Plus or put them in the comment section of our page at sltrib.com. Uh, Congressman, in a previous life, uh, you were an Air Force pilot, you're an author, uh, a businessman. Now you've spent a year in Washington. What have you learned? Well, again, like I said to you earlier, I've learned that flying jets is a lot more fun than being in Congress. And, uh, and you know, I have had this great blessing in my life of being able to do fairly diverse things. Uh, but I think it's been a good year. It's certainly been an interesting year. Um, I think that if you or your viewers or listeners were to find themselves in my situation, I don't think there was anything that really shocked me. It's not like I thought, holy cow, I didn't, didn't see that coming. But not House were, of Cards then, right? No, not quite. Not quite the House of Cards. But, uh, but again, there's it's certainly been a learning curve and I think we've tried to listen and to make friends and to try and figure it out and I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of that so far. Uh, Tommy, bring us up to speed on the congressman's first year in terms of leadership and, and committee assignments. Uh, he, he's covered a fair bit of ground. He has. I was joking, uh, we, you know, he should put the earmuffs on right now so he can't hear me, but it actually is very positive. Uh, it, it, it's, it's been an impressive year for a freshman congressman. Uh, I've been here almost nine years covering uh, Washington, uh, and I've never seen someone, you know, rise so fast. Uh, so obviously he's got the trust of uh, Speaker John Boehner, a majority uh, leader, uh, Eric Cantor. Uh, and just to name a couple things, for example, uh, you know, as, as a freshman, uh, he was appointed to chair a subcommittee of the Natural Resources uh, Committee, uh, which is a pretty big spot for someone who just barely got into Congress. And let's remember, you know, like, there are a lot of Republicans in the House. Uh, they have a majority, so it's not like they're just dying for someone to take a spot. Uh, they specifically chose him for that. Uh, and he must have done a great job there uh, since they then tapped him uh, for the House Appropriations Committee, uh, which, which is a big deal because, uh, one, I think you're the only freshman on the committee. I'm not positive, but I think you are. Uh, and secondly, with the House Appropriations Committee is one of the committees, the, the A committee that you want to be on. And in fact, I don't think you're allowed to even serve on another committee once you're on the Appropriations Committee because uh, they hand out the money. This, this is the money committee. They're the ones who get to say, uh, you know, this this is this money is going to this you know project, this uh, you know department, this agency. Uh, it's it's not earmarked necessarily. Although uh, I'm sure uh, you know it'd be nice to send that bacon back home to. Uh, Salt Lake City or uh, you know St. George or any of those other places, but uh, no more remarks. But the congressman does have a nice seat uh, uh, on a powerful spot, on a powerful committee. Yeah, Congressman, I mean, what does the being on the appropriations mean to you, and and how did you sort of finagle a spot there? Yeah, well, you know, a, a couple comments on that. I mean, Tommy's kind of kidding about the earmarks, of course, and and you know, earmarks were abused. They were abused by both parties, Republicans and Democrats, for years. And I don't know anyone who's arguing that that's a good form to govern and that we would need to go back to that. And I certainly wouldn't say that. 
But appropriations is a place where you can reform government spending. If you're interested in reform, as I am, then a great place to start on that is on appropriations. Uh, it, it was a, a bit of a sacrifice in the sense that I hated to give up the other committees that I've worked on, and especially to give up the chairmanship. But uh, I think we're in a position where we can help do a couple things. One is if you believe, like I do, that we need to control our spending and we need to control our debt, there's no better way to do that than within the appropriations process. The other is once we have an overall balance or budget, once we have an agreement on that, then we get to help set some of the priorities. And some of those things are very important to the state of Utah, and I'd like to fight for some of those if we could. Hmm. Speaking with Utah's 2nd Congressional District, uh, Congressman Chris Stewart, also with us, uh, Tribune, Washington reporter Thomas Burr, and we invite you to join our conversation. If you've got questions or comments, send them to the hashtag uh, TripTalk on Twitter and Google+, or put them in the comment section of our page at sltrib.com. Uh, let's turn to immigration, uh, if, if you will. I understand, Congressman, you support a plan that would allow undocumented immigrants to stay in the country, but they could never become citizens. Yeah. Why, why is that your chosen path? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that, and I've been consistent on this since actually the first day we decided to run for office, and that is we recognize that you know what we're doing right now is unsustainable. It's essentially de facto amnesty, the fact we have 11 or 12 million uh, people who are here who have broken the... Uh, broken laws in order to be here, they've entered the country illegally, and that we seem to just pretend that they're not here. And, and so in addition to that, though, there's this political consideration, that is what is possible, what, legislatively, what could we actually find some compromise that would get through the House, that would get through a Democratic-controlled Senate, and that the President might be willing to sign. And so you, you kind of come at it from the two angles. What is a good solution and then what's politically possible? And I think what I've suggested, which is I can support a special pathway to citizenship for people who, as I've said, entered the country illegally. They've probably broken other laws if they're working here. And then uh, to reward that uh, ahead of other people who have you know gone through the, the legal process, I just felt I, I couldn't do that. It didn't seem fair, but on the other hand, I didn't want to have these people continue to live in the shadows and to, like I said, pretend that they're not there. But this idea of a permanent green card, if you will, kind of some kind of permanent legal status, short of citizenship. And by the way, if you talk with some of the activist groups, some of the groups that are you know out there advocating for some of the immigrant issues and immigration issues, a lot of them are willing to say, you know, I could live with that. And if you talk to some of the you know the very uh, very right wing of my party, a lot of those are willing to say, you know, I could live with that as well. So it seems to be an area of compromise that the House and the Senate and the President might actually agree. Mm, what about the children of the undocumented? I, would they ever have a chance to become citizens? Yeah, yeah, sure they would. It would be, I mean, they're not, I don't want to hold people accountable for the sins or for the misdeeds of their parents. If, if they're innocent and uh, as children, of course they are, then we would allow them a, a pathway to citizenship. And there's been, I think, a, a bit of a change on that over the last oh, four or five years, where that, I think, is, again, there's a consensus among most people. You know, right-wing guys, liberals, moderates, uh, that that seems to be a fair solution. Hmm. Yeah, you talk about maybe this is a compromise that people can agree with, but uh, you've, you've taken some heat for this. Dozens of people showed up at your office last oh, yeah. summer, um, you know, argument, arguing that the undocumented pay taxes. They came here to live the American dream, and now there's no possibility. I mean, how do you respond to, to critics who say uh, there should be some 
path for these people who are, are chasing the American dream. Well, and, and in this case, there is a path, and that path has always existed, and that is they can go through the process like tens of thousands, in fact, millions of people are doing now, and that's go through the, the normal uh, legal process of immigrating to the country legally. So, and by the way, in, in that, uh, on that evening that I think you're referring to there, uh, we, we had these conversations with them, and at the end of the, end of the evening, again, most of them said, you know, I could live with that. It's not everything that we wanted. It's not what we were hoping for, but it seems to be something that a lot of, a lot of people just in good faith could say, yeah, that, that would be all right with me. Hmm. Uh, this week you told uh, members of the Utah House that immigration reform isn't happening this year. Why yeah. not? Well, and I don't think it's necessarily that we don't have some agreement. It's that the House of Representatives is so skeptical of this president. I don't know anyone who wouldn't agree with this. If you're going to do immigration reform, you have to start with the border. If we don't, then I mean we're just keeping, keeping a problem ongoing and not fixing anything. So there has to be real significant border enforcement. And I worked on the subcommittee that that wrote this enforcement bill, this the border security bill, uh, over through the spring and the summer. And yet, I think a lot of people have determined, even if we pass that legislation and we and we get that through the Senate and the president signs it, as Speaker Boehner and others have said, I don't trust this president to enforce the law anymore. He's shown a willingness to pick laws that he agrees with and pick portions of it that he may not agree with. And he chooses which of those he's going to force. And I think it's an example of you, you reap what you sow, and this president and the Congress, the Congress just doesn't trust him any longer. And I think, unfortunately, the result of that is that Im immigration reform moving through over the next, uh, you know, this spring or the summer probably just isn't going to happen. Hmm. Tommy, is the congressman right? Do you see any movement on immigration this year? Yeah, he's correct. It, it's dead. Uh, it, it's interesting because only you know a month ago, a few weeks ago, uh, we we thought we had a, a plan in place. I thought that actually something was going to happen. Uh, Boehner came out, Cantor came out with this plan, which is essentially what the congressman is talking about. Uh, you know, legalizing uh, in some form uh, the people who are here, uh, allowing a path to citizenship for people who are brought here by the parents who had no choice in coming here. Uh, and that bill, like you know. We thought, wow, okay, uh, they can work something out, and then you know they can force it to the Senate maybe. Uh, then the speaker came back and said, you know, no, we don't trust the president. Uh, same line we've heard from uh, the congressman today. Uh, it, it is it is one of those continuous things that we're we're seeing right now with the uh, the Republican leadership in the House. Uh, they do not plan to take any very major controversial issues this year. Uh, the speaker was talking recently about you know passing you know some things like you know job creation bills that the Republicans have pushed and other issues that are that he can get a strong majority for. Uh, but he's not going to take on uh, any you know entitlement reform or any of these big issues because it's an election year. Uh, no reason to create some difficult votes. Yeah. Well, you know, the president has made it clear to us that he's not willing to really work with us on entitlement reform, and I think that's unfortunate. And and many of us wanted to see immigration reform move. And and by the way, Tommy, I I agree with your your kind of analysis there. There there wasn't a big uproar about the principles. Uh, there wasn't a lot of people who said no, we couldn't support this. Most people were just saying let's not do it right now. Yeah, we can see this maybe after the election. Election year is a really tough time to push through major legislation like this. So, you know, maybe next year, uh, and it also depends to see the Republicans obviously want to retake the Senate. If that happens, yeah. then there could be some movement uh, along the same pathway you support. Uh, but, you know, we really have to see how this, this shakes out come November. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a, a lot of this would depend on uh, Chuck Schumer. He has enormous influence over this issue in the Senate. 
and uh, and if he was willing to work with us on this uh, legal status, and he's uh, you know indicated that he would. At first, his line was, "No, no, has to be has to be citizenship. We'll support nothing less than that." But he seemed to show a willingness to to consider some of these other ideas. Uh, but again, I think we're going to have to address that maybe maybe after the election. Mm. Uh, we're speaking with Congressman Chris Stewart, and if you'd like to join our conversation, you can send your thoughts to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google+, or put them in the comments section at sltrib.com. Um, a few <coughs> comments coming in. Steve-O, one, two, three, three, two, three. Uh, Representative Stewart may be a perfect fit for large parts of rural Utah, but Sugar House, I feel like I have no one in this state who gives a blank about what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this from uh, Trapped in Zion. Ask Stewart when he will hold a town hall in Salt Lake City. Not another scam at the small library in the avenues that held not more than 15 people. I guess this oh. is referring to your town hall last year. It was yeah. cramped quarters um, and people thought maybe that was intentional. Oh no, it wasn't intentional at all. And look, we've held 27 town hall meetings. And 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 they've been not in the rural parts of the of the district. They've been in Salt Lake. They've been in North Salt Lake. They've been in Davis County. They've been in Twila. They've been out in West Valley. We have been everywhere through this district. Now there was an unfortunate in that one sense that we were invited to come up there to speak to this group at the at the library. It was their venue. It was their event. And when we realized that you know some some groups had taken that as an opportunity and they were advertising it, we realized that we were probably going to run out of room. We tried to change the venue, but the people who were hosting it, and we were there as their guest, they said, no, we want to do it here. This is our event, and we want to have it here where we've always done it. It's a kind of a traditional meeting that they have up there, I think, every month, actually. And again, I was there as their guest. So I couldn't force them to change that. But, you know, it held, we had well over 100 people in the room, and we did everything we could to accommodate those people. And, and let me say this, too. I said to every one of them, if you want to meet with me, call me. I'll meet with you individually. You don't have to meet me with a group of 100 or 200 people. I'll meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. And some of the people actually realized that I was sincere in that, and they have contacted us, and we have sat down and talked with them. And I think that's a, in, in areas where there's areas of, uh, like this where there's disagreement, that's, a, that's actually a, a much more effective way to try to find some areas that we can work on agreement. And that's not in front of a large group of people necessarily, but one-on-one. -on -one. And, and I would extend that to the, you know, the person who is making a comment to you, hey, call our office. I, I'll happily meet with you. Our office is in downtown Salt Lake City. It's a few blocks from the avenues there, and we'll meet with you anytime. Can I just add in real fast, uh, just to be clarified, you know, the congressman obviously chose to run in the 2nd District, but he didn't choose the district borders. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where exactly he represents it wasn't really his choice. Yeah, yeah it's, it's my home. You know, I live, yeah, I live in the district, obviously, and and I got to say, and this will sound like maybe patronizing, but this is absolutely sincere. The second district is the jewel of the state. I mean, it's the downtown Salt Lake City area. It's the avenues. It's the University of Utah. We have, you know, these beautiful national parks in in the southern part of the of the state. It's just the most dynamic and 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 diverse uh, part district probably of any within the state. So you're going to go on Stephen Colbert and do the uh, Noah District better like Congressman Jacobs did. <laughs> 
I don't know. How did that work out for him? Uh, he lost twice in leg wrestling, so not okay. too great. All right. <laughs> not too great. Um, uh, Congressman, as Tommy mentioned, you were appointed as chairman of the House Subcommittee on the Environment last year. You, you wrote a couple of editorials that were published in the Salt Lake Tribune about climate change. Yeah. And in one of them, uh, you wrote that the science regarding climate change is anything but settled. Um, that you would work to ensure that we've conducted a thorough scientific review and then use that information to advocate for reasonable policy decisions. Now that you've spent some time looking at the science, I mean, did your study of the topic change your mind in any way? No, no. L listen, I didn't make those comments out of ignorance. That's, I didn't start studying climate change when I was elected office. I was a business owner and the CEO of a company that worked in that area. We've been training and, and doing environmental consulting for 35 years or so. And this isn't something that I came to and said, well, I have no idea what the right answer is, so I'll go try and figure it out. I've spent years looking at this. And, and let's just begin with this, this idea that the science is settled. Why is that a controversial statement to make? And, and I'll, I'll give you a quick example. How many years now have we said that mammograms are important, that they're critical to women's health? And yet there was a study that came out just last week that had studied 90,000 women for 15 years. And their conclusion was, you know what, maybe this isn't what we thought it was. And by definition, science should be open to discussion. It should be open to debate. But there's kind of this narrative that's formed that says, well, if you don't agree with me on this and in every particular, you're this climate denier. And they use this pejorative term to try and tie you with something that's extraordinarily negative. And it poisons the debate. I agree in the, the idea that our climate is changing. There's no question that it's changing. The question is, why is it changing? How much of it is caused by man? What can we do to fix it? Do we have international support to fix it? Because if the United States acts alone, we, will, we won't have any success at all. And finally, how much is it going to cost? And what is the, what is the, the impacts going to be upon, say, let's say that China joins us in climate, in climate change and, does, and cuts their carbon emissions as we have, What's that going to do to the people in developing countries? Those are fair questions to ask. I can't imagine anyone not being willing to discuss those things. You know, to be, to be honest, that, that's actually very, the congressman's not in some extreme wing of the party uh, when he says these comments. This, this is felt by a lot of uh, mainstream Republicans, the same, uh, the same attitude and the same uh, take on climate change. Uh, and you're not saying by any means, uh, Congressman, you don't believe that the, it is getting warmer. The concern is, you know, what is actually the cause. Uh, I would also point out that if the Obama administration really hasn't made this a big of an issue to go through Congress, they may, they're doing things maybe through executive orders, through the EPA, uh, but they're not, this is not a big push for any kind of climate change legislation coming straight from the White House. Well, uh, Tommy, I think that's a great point. Maybe just uh, if you want to move on to another topic, if we could end with this. Let's recall that in 2009, 2010, the president had a supermajority in the Senate, and they had a clear majority in the House. And if it was the most important issue of the day, why didn't they move climate change legislation when they controlled the House and the Senate? And, and, and they chose not to. And the reason is is because I think these issues are much more complicated than a lot of people are willing to, willing to give. Hmm. Uh, this comment uh, on the topic, uh, Rabble Rouser writes, I, I can respect your military service, but not your political positions. Climate change is real. Tell Holly Refinery that they can't expand because they're adding to the problem of CO2 and polluting our air that we all have to breathe. I mean, what about air quality? A very hot issue in Utah yeah. right now. There is a bill being considered uh, by state lawmakers that would... Uh, allow the state to create regulations that are even tighter than the EPA. Where do you stand on that? 
you know, uh, there's a reason that those of us who live in Utah live here. It's because we love the state. Uh, I have children that had some respiratory illnesses. I'm sensitive to some of the health issues here. Uh, and, you know, when you drive into the valley and you drive into that inversion, I don't know anyone who says, oh, isn't this great? You know, this is a, this is a beautiful thing. But on those clear days when you look around the valley and see those mountains, you think, you know, what we want to preserve it. We want it to look like this. But I, I guess I would say maybe two, two or three things. One is that there's a meaningful geological reality here, and that is, and I've said this in kind of a in kind of a kidding way, but it's true. If you want to eliminate the aversions or, or some of these air quality issues, you got to tear down the mountains, and you've got to get the slips, uh, the jet stream to come a couple hundred uh, miles to the south, because there's a reason that the Indians called this Smoky Valley. I mean, it, it just has this tendency to trap this air in, and we don't emit any more pollution than Memphis or Portland or any other city our size. It's just we have this inversion and the and the again these mountains that ag aggravate it and make it make it so much more visible. Now, having said that, I would support any efforts that the state's willing to do in order to eliminate or to at least alleviate this problem. If the state decides that they want to have you know regulations that are tighter than the EPA's, gosh, I think that's great. I think that the people in the state should be able to make that conclusion. Uh, but the my point would be that it's best decided at the state level. If you have a problem with this, you can drive up the road to your capital and you can meet with the governor, you can meet with the state legislatures and they will make, I, I, I think they will make the best decision. I just hate for those decisions to be made in Washington, D.C. Governor, I'm sorry, can I just point out, Congressman, though, that I mean, the, the governor's plan has been essentially the EPA solution. It is the federal yeah. solution. I mean, the, Governor Herbert is pushing, his solution is, is taken like carbon copy, here's what the feds have suggested. Yeah. Well, once again, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, I, I don't necessarily know that I know the answer to that. But I would suggest that I'm glad those conversations are taking place at the state level rather than in Washington. And if the state decides that they want to be more restrictive, then I think that's their prerogative to have the, to be able to make that decision if they choose to. Hmm. I want to move on. You voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, and yet uh, thousands are signing up. Yeah. Uh, what's wrong with health reform as as it now stands? Well, with what's wrong with Obamacare, Jennifer? Is that what mm -hmm. you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, look, we're glad that some people are signing up. And by the way, I'm on the Affordable Care Act. I'm a, I'm on Obamacare as are all other congressmen and senators. But, uh, but taken in the aggregate, it's really really hard to argue that this law has been successful. And I don't know any Democrats who are arguing that this law has been successful. We know. And this isn't this isn't you know a political opinion. We know that there's fewer people insured now than there were before this law was implemented. We know that the costs have gone up for for families and individuals after being promised that it would cost twenty five hundred dollars per family less, and we know that that's not true. We know that you can't keep your doctor or your hospital like you've been promised. And and there's a, one other element to it, and that is there's an there's a, an infringement on what I think are personal liberties, and in some cases religious liberties. So. You know, I, again, I don't. I was kind of kidding with one of my one of my friends, who's a, a Democrat from from uh, a Western state, and I said, you know, the good news is I don't have to get up and defend Obamacare every morning. And she kind of nodded her head and smiled and said, yeah, it's tough right now. Well, it's only been in existence of 
an actual, uh, you know, as far as the individual people keep signing up for your health care for a few months now, it's, it's hard yeah. to really judge, you know, how this actually will affect the economy or, you know, health coverage uh, in only just a short period. Is that is that correct? Well, Tommy, I think there's, you know, you're you're taking the last few months and saying, yeah, people are signing up and, and that's better and the web page has been fixed and, and that's a little better. But the problem with Obamacare isn't the web page. I mean, I, that became the target for for a while because it was just, again, by any measure, just such a disastrous rollout. But the problem with Obamacare is much more strategic. It's much, it goes down many, many more layers. And we do know some things. I mean, the CBO, which is nonpartisan, has said it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it harder for, what, 2.3 million people to find employment. Uh, we do know that it's driven up the cost for, for individuals and families. And so there are some things that we, that we can project out, and again, in a nonpartisan way. Uh, and let me say this uh, before, if you want to move on. Mm -hmm. There there was bipartisan support for dealing with some of these things. I'm glad that children uh, up to age 26 can stay on their parents' health insurance. Uh, being a father of six, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I would have supported that anyway. I recognize that those people with pre-existing conditions, that they were in, in some cases, just crushing situations was they were panicked. Or, or trying to find health insurance or trying to afford health insurance. The Republicans had proposed a $20 billion package that would have helped those people to find affordable health insurance. The problem with this law is it just was, you know, it was such a broad and such a deeply reaching law that had so many other effects and many of them have turned out to be negative. Mm. Uh, yeah, I do want to move on because our time is, is slowly uh, drifting away. Last year the, the state legislature passed a law requiring the feds to, to essentially hand over the title to federal lands within the state's borders. It's being contested in court, but wondered if you want to chime in on, on, on the debate. What, do you think it's a good idea for the state to sort of intervene on federal lands issues? And what chance do they have um, of getting a favorable uh, review in court? Yeah, you know, I've talked with uh, some legal experts, and, you know, there's a few who say that they think it's possible that the judicial system and, and the courts will, will find for the state. I, I talked to a number of others who shake their hand and say it's, you know, there's not a chance in the world that's going to happen. I guess we'll find out. It won't be the first time that federal judges have surprised us if they do find for the state. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's many of us who look at this and, and we can argue about or, or discuss, you know, what brought us to this situation, you know, and the constitutional efforts and, you know, the state uh, the agreement that they had when Utah was en entered into the Union. But I do think that, you know, putting that aside, let's just ask this question. Would there be benefit to both the federal government, by the way, and to the state and to the citizens within the state if the state were to control more of the land within our boundaries? And, you know, something like 67 or 70 percent of the state is controlled by the federal government. I don't know why people would resist the idea of allowing the state to exercise a little bit more of control over what is essentially our, our own backyard. Can we go a little a little smaller to start with, uh, since you're on the Powerful Appropriations Committee, uh, Congressman, can, can Utah get that $1 million back uh, from the uh, federal government that it paid to reopen the park the during parks? the government shutdown? I, I think we can, and we should, shouldn't we? And heavens, we're not going to bankrupt our government with that $1 million. But, you know, I just think out of principle that the federal government ought to recognize, you know, the state absorbed those costs. They were doing it to keep these parks open for, for people who had come, in, in some cases, long distances to visit the park. You know, let's do the right thing and let the state be compensated for that. A lot of angst over the past year on the revelations from Edward Snowden and yeah. uh, sort of the, the the lengths that the NSA has gone to 
to surveil its citizens. This week we saw some new information that uh, there's actually been some surveillance of a private American law firm, clearly not a national security risk. I'm wondering where you come down on, on privacy and sort of setting limits on surveillance by government. Yeah, I, I think we have to do that. And, you know, listen, as, as a former military officer, when some of these things were first revealed about uh, Edward Snowden, my gut reaction was, we have to protect the American people. We have to protect our national security. I mean, that's what I've spent most of my adult life doing, is kind of along those lines of thinking. But as more and more has been revealed, I've come almost 180 degrees on this, as have, by the way, other Republicans and other conservatives. And that is, I just think we've gone too far. I'm extraordinarily uncomfortable with the idea that the, some of the metadata they're collecting. I'm very uncomfortable with this idea that, you know, maybe our emails and others are being stored and maybe not read now, but the fact that they're being stored and could go back and be reviewed. I don't know why we have to do that. I don't think we should be doing that. And, and, and one, one other thing I might add on this, and some people have heard them say, you know, Edward Snowden's a hero. I, I don't disagree with him for revealing this NSA. I think it was, I think he did it in a, a very inappropriate manner. I think there was some legal means where he could have done this, but I will say this as well. He did much more than that. He has hurt our nation. I wish I could share with, with you uh, some of the highly classified briefings and things that I've read on other things that he has done to weaken our nation in really meaningful ways that will endanger us for years to come. And, you know, when I hear others say, you know, uh, you know, this guy's a hero, I just want to shake my head and, and I just go, well, please, I wish people understood how he has damaged our, our, our security. Just to add a little context to that, it's actually fascinating. I, I wrote a story about this not too long ago. The, the, the National Security Agency and the, the eavesdropping, the snooping concerns of late have really united the left and right, uh, yeah. which is kind of fascinating that, you know, I think we all think of uh, politics as, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's the left and then there's the right. Uh, but really, it's, it's almost a circle. And, and yeah. when you get the two sides together, you have people like, you know, Dick Durbin and Mike Lee working together uh, on legislation dealing with this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you've seen that in the House, some of the, some of the very libertarian members of the House have worked with some of the very, you know, members of the Congressional Black Caucus. But it's it's this middle as well. I mean, there's many of us in the middle, including members of the, of the leadership, and I won't speak for them. I'll let them speak for themselves. But I know from private conversations with them that there are members of the leadership who feel exactly as I do on this. Well, I suppose there's a tiny little... Uh, area where you can all agree, but um, we have seen, as Americans, we've seen the gridlock in Washington and the yeah. frustration that builds with the government shutdown. I mean, the the symptomatic, uh, the, the results of symptoms of this rigid partisanship. What's the fix, Congressman? What? The, how do you see this being alleviated and and people working together and and sort of moving our our country beyond this? Yeah. You know, people ask me that all the time, and I wish I had some magic bullet. I mean, if I did, then we'd fix this, right? Uh, and I think maybe I'd add a little bit of context to it. One of them is, is that there's, there's principles actually in conflict here. These aren't, you know, arguments over things that people don't care about. They care about these things. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican or conservative or liberal, they care about these things that they're, that they're you know, kind of fighting over. The second thing I'd say, just in a broader context, and that is it's not the first time that we've had you know, partisan conflicts. Heavens, go back and look at, you know, the ultimate example, of course, is civil war. And look at what not Abraham Lincoln's enemies, look what his friends said about him. Look how our founding fathers, after this miracle of creating the Constitution, within a year, 18 months, some of these guys were literally dueling with each other. They, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't like each other in some cases. 
So I think it's important to remember that this is kind of who we are as a nation. We have to have to kind of work our way through these issues. It's not it's not particularly new or dramatic that we find ourselves in this in this area where there's a lot of disagreement. I do think to offer some encouragement to to people. I think we've we've reached a point now where some of us are willing to willing to actually work together. Uh, look at the at the budget that we passed last uh, last year at the end of the year. You know that's not the budget that I would have written. It was written with democrat obviously democratic uh, interests in the sense that Harry Reid controls the the Senate and the President controls the White House. It's not in my mind a perfect budget, but we were able to find some areas of agreement and put a budget together that most people supported. So clearly we can work together, uh, and I think it's important that we try. Just since uh, the congressman mentioned my uh, my distant cousin Aaron Burr, I will just defend that uh, <laughs> us Burrs are very good shots. Uh, you know, one thing Congress is good at is uh, is governing by crisis, which is why we sought the budget deal, uh, because you know we, we really have to have uh, some kind of huge deadline where we're actually going to fall off the cliff to get something done. Um, and I don't know if there's a solution out there, but apparently we need more crises to, uh, to keep it going. Uh, <laughs> I'll just ask this this last question. Finally, uh, you've announced that you're going to seek a second term. Why? Yeah. Well, I don't think that's going to surprise a lot of people. I just don't think you can effectively do anything in Congress in two years. I mean, when my wife and I and our and our children, you know, took on this challenge, we knew that it was going to be more than just two years. Uh, and honestly, I look forward to the time when I can come back to back home and write books and do the kind of things that I've enjoyed doing over the last few years. But if you're going to be effective in Congress, you have to be willing to give it a little bit of time. I don't want to be there for the rest of my life. I promise you that. And I'm not going to be there until, until I'm you know much older. But uh, but if we feel like you know you had to give it two or three terms and, and do the best you could, and then just see if you were able to be effective. So yeah, we're 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 glad to be engaged in the campaign again. Look forward to trying to convince enough people and the voters of this district to uh, to allow me to go back and have the honor of representing them once again. Well, we'll certainly be watching the campaign. Congressman, thank you so much for the time. Thank Tommy Burr, thanks to you as well. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank and you, And you can find a lot of coverage um, from our Washington Bureau on the website, sltrib.com. I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks for joining us for Trib Talk today. We'll see you next time.